I want to talk about prayer this morning. I want to talk about Psalm 3. Um, as, uh, as Sarah alluded to, and, and as those of us who have been around this year uh, know, this really has been a difficult year for, for this family. And, and uh, you know, not only have we lost people, but you know, there have been some really difficult diagnoses, and there's just been a lot of things that have just happened, um, and, uh, and it's been rough. And sometimes, um, I think, sometimes, honestly, in our sort of tradition, uh, you know, we, we really value prayer very highly, but sometimes I think we feel, at least I don't know about you, I'll say for me, feel sort of a pressure to pray really good prayers. You know, like, I've got to make this meaningful. I've got to really mean it. And I gotta, I gotta make it good, you know? And, uh, and it's good because we have a value for, for heartfelt prayer, but sometimes I think that can be like an unduly pressure, like almost like it's works, like you've gotta drum yourself up to pray something inspiring. And I grew up in a really heavy prayer culture and I did feel that often. And uh, the idea of praying somebody else's prayer seemed like, oh, that whoa, 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 that's super, that's religious. You know, you step away from that. But actually, Jesus prayed um, other people's prayers all the time. Because the saints in the New Testament and in the Old Testament prayed the Psalms. And other people wrote those. And uh, I, it's a powerful thing to be able to do. And <clears throat> this year, as we've been walking through some, some difficult times, I've, uh, I've done this more. And I think it's uh, actually very helpful. And Psalm 3 is a wonderful psalm to pray in the midst of difficult times, whether it's your own difficult time or somebody else's. And uh, so I want to dive in to, uh, to that this morning. And there's a lot here about fear. Um, and uh, so let's just dive in. Uh, psalm 3 is a psalm of David uh, when he fled from Absalom, his son. We don't, we don't get titles or circumstances on all that many psalms. It's actually, I, I think of it, I think it was kind of a treat. Oh, good, we know. This one actually tells us when he wrote it. Um, here's the story with David and Absalom. We know David, uh, it, most of us probably picture the young shepherd boy, the young, righteous, passionate king who danced before the Lord. Didn't always dance in his skivvies, I don't think, but he did that one time. That's what my wife was referring to there. Um, but, uh, you know, he was the stalwart figure, particularly in 1 Samuel. But when you read 2 Samuel, things go south in a lot of different ways. And uh, he was not a very, uh, well, honestly, he wasn't a great guy um, after he had been king for a while. He just, there were so many missteps and, and, and just terrible things that he did. But then his, he always turned his heart back to the Lord. Well, he's, that's why he's still considered a hero of the faith, because he did that, because he just threw himself at, at the Lord's mercy. Uh, but it was a very troubled reign. And one of the things that he was bad at was, was on, just going to be blunt, he was not a good father. He had a son named Amnon. He had lots of sons and daughters because he had lots of wives, which was actually forbidden uh, uh, for, you know, leaders in Israel, for, for the kings, but he didn't care. And uh, he had lots of wives, and um, he had this son who uh, really was enamored with his half-sister Tamar. And he wanted to seduce his half-sister, so he... he cooked up this plan with his friend that he would pretend that he was sick so she would come, he would, he would ask her to come and she would make, she was apparently uh, really good at baking and so she could come and make food for him and he'd be rested. Well, he gets the situation just right and he makes everybody clear the room and he propositions her. And Tamar says no and then he proceeds to have his way with her anyway. It was a horrible thing. And uh, she 
she didn't hide it. What she did actually is covered herself in mourner's clothes, um, sort of mourning for her own future, her, her lost honor. And uh, it was, you know, even more complicated back then. It was sort of like, now your chances of being married are very, very, very slim. Um, so another one of her brothers ends up taking her under his wing, and that is Absalom. Absalom was her full brother, and he saw what had happened here, and he sort of waited for his dad to do something. What do you, shouldn't a king do something when his son does something this heinous? But he didn't. David did nothing. So Absalom waits. He waits for a good time, and he has a, a, a backpacking trip with all of his brothers. They go camping, and uh, he convinces them all, and he also talks to his own bodyguards and arranges a time when Amnon will be exposed and will be easy to get to, and they pounce and they murder Amnon. So they go back home, everybody flees, and they, they go back home, and word gets to David, this is what happened. Absalom, your son, killed Amnon, your son. What are you going to do? Well, David does nothing. So there's a rape that happens among his children, and he doesn't take any action. And now a murder, and he doesn't take any action. Absalom flees. He goes into exile and is gone for a while, but David really misses him. Now, why didn't David act? That's a wonderful question. I wonder if he thought that he had lost all of his moral authority because of the things that he himself had done, particularly with Bathsheba and Uriah. Maybe he thought he just didn't have a leg to stand on, but for whatever reason, uh, he, he doesn't do anything. He really begins to miss Absalom, so he calls Absalom back to the kingdom, and he kind of comes, but he, he, he doesn't come, you know, he, he comes in kind of an underhanded way. He's got all of his bodyguards, he's got these men that run in front of his chariots, and so he, he comes back, but he comes back sort of positioning himself as a folk hero, and it works. Because people know, they know what happened. They're thinking, okay, here's Absalom. We don't necessarily condone the fact that he murdered Amnon. Probably shouldn't have done that. But it was, you know, he's defended the honor of his sister, so is it so bad? Not, I mean, David really should have done so. Eh. So he begins to slowly play that, that image. And he begins to sort of position himself on the outskirts. So as people are upset with David for various things, he would say things like, you know, if I was running the place, this would never happen. They're like, people are like, yeah, oh, yeah. And he does this for long enough until finally he gets the opportunity. And he's in the town of Hebron. He brings his people down there. This is where David first had, had become king uh, in the south of Judah. And they blow the shofar, and everybody rises up at once and says, long live Absalom the king. And, uh, and they, people come along with it. They say, okay, are we doing this? Okay, let's do this. And suddenly there's civil war. And they start marching on Jerusalem. And David hears this, and he realizes what's happening. He realizes this is not good at all, uh, and I have to go. So he, he packs up with his guards, with whatever family uh, he can bring with him, and they flee. David runs for his life out of the palace, away from his son and his son's army, because he's going to be killed. That's the situation that the psalm was written. It's pretty intense, huh? Be a, 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 probably a really good movie. I'm sure there have been movies made on this. 
but uh, very dramatic. So it's in the midst of, of this situation that he writes, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. He's being quite literal here. Many are my foes. I have a whole lot of enemies right now. Many are rising up against me. Many people who were loyal to me, and, and now they're not. Now, he did sort of set the wheels in motion by his own actions, but this was a very wicked thing that they were doing. Absalom would have been a terrible king, and uh, this isn't the way that God set up this kingdom to work. He didn't want it to work this way in the beginning, but it, it was not supposed to happen by one coup after another after another, which will eventually happen in the northern kingdom. That's not what he had intended. So here David is saying, Lord, how many are my enemies? They're more rising up against me. And it wasn't just distant people. It was people like Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of his, his uh, chief counselors. He was this wise man, and people hung on Ahithophel's words. They trusted him. And uh, Ahithophel decided to turn to Absalom which was a great blow to him. Coincidentally, Ahithophel happened to be Bathsheba's grandfather. You read between the lines on why some of that might have happened. So here he is. All of them are rising up against me saying, there is no salvation in God. So, I'm talking here about praying the Psalms, yet I'm giving you this super dramatic, fiery background. So how can we pray the Psalms? Because probably... Probably you guys don't have a whole lot of enemies that are rising against you trying to hunt you down and slit your throat. Now, if you do, we can walk over and talk to Chief Bob like right now. Like, I get down right now. We can do that. But probably this isn't where most of us are at. So, so how do we contextualize this today? Well, you know, Paul says in Galatians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? So we have daily struggles against the enemy and all the things the enemy brings. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of foes. We all do. And it seems like this year, I've felt surrounded a few times. And maybe you have. Maybe you are feeling that today. What kind of foes can surround us? Well, temptation. Right? Temptations to greed, to lust, to anger, to rage, to cruelty, all of these things. What else? Sorrow, despair. What else? Unforgiveness. So many things. Death, sickness, diagnoses, fear, all of this. And you can look around and say, how many are my foes? It's right and good that we contextualize in th this in this way. I'm thankful that my life isn't being sought after physically by men. But you know what? We're fighting a very, very real battle, each and every one of us. So when we say, Lord, how many are my foes? We can say that and be honest about it. Not just like, I'm being a drama queen, because it, it's not. It's very true. We're all fighting battles here. And our enemies might say there is no salvation for him and God. In fact, that's exactly what the world says, don't they? Why do you still trust? Why do you still believe? Why do you believe in this God thing? It's a really good question. Why do you still worship? Well, I do find it interesting 
how blindsided we can be with questions like that. Because the fact is, human beings worship. And if you don't worship God, you'll put something else in that place and worship that. Everybody has their own plan of salvation. For some, the plan of salvation looks like this. Well, I'm going to do my best, try not to hurt anybody, and then we'll just be all right. Okay, that's a, that's a plan of salvation. Some seek salvation through self-expression, self-actualization. If I can find the real me, if I can embrace the best version of myself and shine, that's what salvation looks like. Some will find it through sexual expression. It's like a flashback to 1969. That's kind of where we are right now. If I can just express myself in this way, in the way that, boom, then that's salvation. Some will find it through seeking comfort. If I can wrap myself in the American dream. If I can have all the things that I want and keep out all the dangerous things that threaten that, that's salvation. That's the thing. That's my goal. That's where, that's peace. That's safety. That's what that is. Or you might find it in distraction. Salvation through partying. Salvation through medication, through alcohol, through drugs, through pornography, through sex, whatever it is. I will be free by pushing all the others aside and pretending they don't exist. I'll be free by making myself, uh, by preventing myself from feeling the very real pain and danger and fight that I'm in. Everybody has a plan of salvation. Everybody worships. Nevertheless, sometimes I feel that. They say there's no salvation in God and sometimes that feels pretty real. I'm gonna be honest with you. Sometimes that feels real when people will say that. Because we've been in some battles and we've lost some battles. And then you wind up saying, Lord, why didn't you heal? Do you heal? Do you have the power? What, why didn't you, you know, you start that question. There's no salvation in God. Why do you still go on? Starts feeling very legitimate and difficult to answer. So David goes on. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Notice he doesn't say, you, O oh Lord, are a comfy sweater and a cup of hot chamomile. <laughs> Why does he say a shield? Well, because we live in a, a, a battle, you know? Like, that's what this is. That's what this is. We, as much as we could try to wish or pray that fact away, that fact is not going away. Theologian Greg Boyd said, people wonder why, you know, it looks like a war zone around us. Well, the reason it looks like a war zone is because it is a war zone. That's why. So in the middle of that, he's not a sweater, he's a shield. The, my glory and the lifter of my head, that even in the middle of all of this, he can take our chin as we stare at our feet or stare at the ground and help us to look up again. In the New Testament, there was no talk of God making us all rich and giving us lives free of sickness and oppression. No, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. He is very realistic and gritty about this life. 
and he intends to be with us in the middle of the battle. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I cried aloud. This is where David is remembering. He's, he is turning his own memory. Sort of like, grab, no, 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 listen, mind. Remember, heart, think back. And you see where he does this. He talks about meditating on the, 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 the watch time hours, that middle of the night and remembering and forcing himself. That, that's a powerful tool, our memory. And when we're in the middle of a battle, sometimes the best thing we can do is to think back on the things that he's done. Can I tell you a time that he did something for me? I have the microphone on, so I'm just going to tell you whether or not you nod your head. It's kind of a fake question. <laughs> I was <clears throat> thinking about a time where I was very desperate, when I felt like I was in despair, when I was full of self-pity, uh, and we were legitimately just, I felt like, totally surrounded. Uh, we have, my wife and I, of course, were, uh, were in Youth of the Mission for many years as a, a missions organization. Uh, we volunteered with them full time and we had to raise our own financial support. And it was, uh, it was difficult. I grew up that way. My parents did that. And uh, so in stepping into it, um, it, was, it was still very difficult. We never, ever had enough money. We were always on, on the brink of disaster, financial ruin. Um, yeah, actually, we couldn't have gotten financial ruin because we literally had no money. It would, uh, uh, but... It, we had we had come out of YWAM and we had moved up here, and uh, and a year and a half into our time up here, um, Pastor Joshua he brought me in and he offered me this job. That was great, um, and so you know we accepted it. Uh, weren't sure we wanted to, but we knew it was the Lord, so we did. Uh, but it was only part time. It was only one third time. And so it put us in this really sort of weird thing where we weren't raising support anymore because uh, we, we weren't volunteers anymore, uh, but we didn't have nearly enough money <laughs> to pay the bills, and we were working like a lot of hours because um, we just felt like the Lord said, dive in, go all in here. And so we did. Um, but it was a really difficult time, and I, I think of, uh, um, I, I know Pastor Joshua has told this part before. Uh, Mark Gwillem, in the middle, I was sharing, just like pouring my heart out and, uh, about how difficult this was. And, and part of it is, we, you know, we were living in, in, in a small house with all five of our kids and Janae. So we had three adults and five children um, living in a two-bedroom home. And uh, everybody kept trading sicknesses back and forth. It was like somebody had the flu one week and they're better. It was like that going on all the time. Jack was a flight risk um, and we didn't have a fence. So every time he stood out, it was like constant stress. It was just like always on high alert, always exhausted, and never feeling like we could breathe. And in the middle of this, uh, Mark Willem had, had, had told me a couple uh, months into that, he said, Jason, I believe that in one year the Lord's going to give you a house. You're going to move into a home. And I actually laughed. It was just like Abraham and Sarah. It was like, exactly, like I laughed. I thought it was really funny. Um, so, um, but we go on, and then I'm like, okay, so maybe there's something to this. And, and Habitat for Humanity was building a new home. And uh, somebody said, why don't you apply? So we applied. Habitat doesn't give you a home, but uh, it gives you the opportunity to help build a home and, and buy it for, you know, very low interest rate and all this. So 
We applied for that because we're like, okay, cool. Maybe this is God's provision. And, uh, and we got accepted and we became like their, you know, perfect picture family here. They have a bunch of kids. You're working, uh, but you have, you know, very little income and you even have a special needs kid, all of this stuff. So we're like a shoe head. So we get that and <laughs> it's, just, it's just true. It's like, yes, a big family. Yeah. So um, we start going through that process. And uh, uh, one of the steps in that was a credit check. <laughs> now, we were in all kinds of debt because we just kept putting things on credit cards. I was trying to do this internet business stuff, and it was not working. We were bleeding cash. And uh, uh, so we, uh, we go, and we're, okay, we'll have this credit check. This is going to be ugly. So these two ladies come over to our house, and they're sitting, and they open up. They've got these folders like, oh, let's look at your credit. And we're like, <gasps> okay. And they said, yeah, this was uh, really interesting. I'm like, I, and I was immediately wanting to dive into all of these things because when you come out of YOM, you have this sort of embarrassment about you that like, yeah, the reason it showed we didn't have money wasn't because we didn't work. We actually worked a lot. They just didn't give us any money for working. <laughs> it was kind of weird, I know. But it was like, you know, anyway. So before I could get into this, here's what this lady says. She goes, your credit is pristine. I say, what? He's like, well, you guys are definitely in debt, but you've never had a late payment in the 13 years of your marriage. What? And they start looking, check this out, and they're just flipping through. They're like, I mean, for you guys in like the income level you're at, this is really astonishing. And we're looking through, and tears come to my eyes, and I start remembering. I start remembering all the times when we have a bill due when we live down in Texas and like literally no way to pay it. And then somebody, random person would just give us a check and it would like perfectly cover it, having no idea how much we needed. Or some, just cash or whatever. Like all of this, sometimes it was like down to the dollar how much money we needed and that would just come in that day. We'd be like, <laughs> okay, thank you, Lord. <laughs> you told us to do this. We're walking in and I don't know how we're going to do it. But he just, and it was just like time after time. And I started to remember even this one time, you know, I'm an avid coffee drinker and I had this kind of coffee I like to get. It was actually not very expensive at all, but it was good whole bean coffee. And I decided we're so broke right now. I just have to buy Folgers. <laughs> I see you, Whitaker. I see you. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'm going to do this. And, uh, and, and then people would randomly start bringing me coffee. Like, oh, good. They're like, hey, I just got back from Chicago, dropped into Caribou. I'm like, I love Caribou coffee. They're like, hey, I just came back from Indonesia. This happens in YWAM. Nobody has any money yet. We're all going on these crazy missions trips. <laughs> like, hey, while I was going through, I got you this, you know, I'm like, Time, and I would run out of coffee, and like that day, somebody else would bring me more coffee. It was crazy. And I just started having all these memories, and it flooded back to me, and I thought, Jason, you have never been alone. You've never been alone. And he has never, like, forgotten about you. So this whole self-pity thing, you need to put away, because he's always been there for you. They're looking over this, and they're flipping pages, and I'm like, oh, man. And, and, and guys, it got better from there, because... Because just like a month later, the Lord provided a job for me where I could work whenever I wanted. And it was like suddenly, suddenly we had enough money to buy our first home. Like we had enough income and it worked. 
so because this other thing would have taken like a year and a half. Just like, and it was like, boom, you could move in to a home that's actually bigger than the one they're going to get for you. And it has a fenced-in yard so Jack can be safe. And it has this covered area so your kids can play outside, which is the thing that you had actually prayed about. Remember all, all of these things. And guys, within a year of Mark Willem saying that to me, we moved in. I cried aloud and he answered me. See, memory really can be a powerful weapon. So when we're in the midst of it, that doesn't like take the current battle away, does it? But you know what it does? It says this, okay, it can't be true that there's no salvation in God because I've tasted it. It can't be true that there's no hope because I have, I've tasted hope before. I know hope personally. Thinking back thinking back is a powerful thing. He answered me. I lay down and slept. David eventually, running from Absalom, running for his life, eventually has to make camp. He eventually has to close his eyes and trust that he's going to make it through the night. And he does. And get this. Here's his testimony. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I don't know why, but this verse broke me when I came across this. Because sometimes, sometimes that's, you, you have to measure hope that way, you know? I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. He sustained me. He, David's measuring God's faithfulness one grim night at a time, one vulnerable experience after the next in which God stands by him, stands over him, stands around him. Trusting God and sleeping can be an act of spiritual warfare. You know why? Because you're, you're, you're acknowledging your own limitedness. This is why it's a powerful thing to take a Sabbath, to take a day off of work, because you're acknowledging, okay, is the world still going to go on without me? Yes. And for some of you, that's hard. Because there is a belief in some places that, like, I have to keep going, otherwise everything's going to fall apart. Do you trust that God, even in the midst of a storm, can take care of you? That's what David does. He trusts God in the midst of this storm that he's going to be sustained. And he wakes up and he goes, ha ha, it worked. <laughs> I woke up again. God sustained me. Okay, he's still here. I trust him. Look where he goes. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He wakes up refreshed, realizing God's faithfulness, and he's ready to take on the whole army by himself. He says, I will not be afraid. I've remembered his goodness, and he's shown it to me again, because here I am, and it's a new day, and he's refreshed me, and it's a new day. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Again, the violent imagery. We have to give him a pass on that, or at least a partial pass. This is a very violent situation. He's speaking very literally about people that are trying to come and slit his throat. So he's saying, Lord, fight for me. God, I'm awake now. Are you awake? If you're not, let's wake up. Let's fight. I'm ready. 
Just as we rest and rise, so he's, he's calling God to, to fight a new day, to defeat his enemies. And we can do this too as we pray this. Lord, break lust in the teeth today. That's a good prayer. You can take that one. Lord, injustice is running at me. Sweep the leg. Why not? Lord, envy is haunting me. Lord, pierce envy. Take him out. Lord, fight for me today. Fight against these enemies that are all around me. That is right and good prayer, friends. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. He comes back to that original accusation. There's no salvation in God. And he says, um, actually, yes, there is. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I spent some time with Tito and Regina recently. Not enough time. But Tito and, and Regina have been dealing with uh, this cancer battle for uh, five years. Over five. Is it over five years, right? And you guys who have seen any of this battle with them, it's been like this. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I don't think it's ever been up like that. Probably since then. And it's been touch and go sometimes. And it's been one thing after another. And one treatment that does well and stops working. And then, oh, it looks, oh, and it's been like that. And here they are, still with us, serving the Lord. Here he is, still helping to lead us and worshiping a really good God. You know the thing that strikes me about these guys right now? I mean, many things. But this... They're not afraid. These guys aren't living in any kind of denial. They understand what cancer is. They've lost people. They've walked this journey with others. They've been at the, the, the cancer hospital in Portland and they've made friends and they've lost friends and they've seen hope up and they've seen it dashed and all of these things and they've ridden this roller coaster ride. They're not walking in denial, but they're walking in joy. And they're walking without fear. And I know sometimes that's not easy to muster. I don't, I don't, make it, I don't want to make it seem like this is easy, especially for you, Rahid. I know it's not. But you guys have chosen not to be afraid because you know Jesus and you trust him. And even if cancer ultimately wins, it still loses. Because his salvation is not here. It's up there. Salvation belongs to God. And that means even if this temporal thing doesn't go the way we want, he's still with Jesus forever. Do you see that? And we still get to serve him and worship him together forever. It's not rooted to something here. It's not rooted in finding his true self. It's not rooted even in the beautiful gifts that he has in music or any of these other things. No, that's not where it is. His salvation is found in Jesus. So he can be in the midst of this, fighting for his life and his dear wife walking beside him, crying out to the Lord continually, which we still do, which we still do, because we've seen God come through in these situations. But even if, even if 
the salvation belongs to the Lord, not to anything here. You guys, this is the inheritance of the saints. This is what we have been given. It's something that's deeper than us. It's something that's more solid than us, than our own happiness, than our own dreams, than anything that this culture can have that could call salvation. Salvation belongs to God, and because it belongs to God, we don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. Even in the midst of very real trials, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of disease and syndromes, all kinds of things that we stand against, we don't have to be afraid because salvation is found in Him.